Hello and welcome to part two of the Human Operating System series for Thought Architecture. So today what I wanted to go through with you very simply is the social brain theory. The, the first principle that I like to talk about is this idea of no, no person is an island unto themselves entirely. So, you know, uh, where do we start with this? Why don't we just start with very simply observing. If we observe people who are removed from communities, they tend to go a bit nuts. Social skills tend to be more rewarding than intellectual or academic prowess. You know, someone who's able to work well in a group is more likely to experience some measure of success and be accepted by the community versus, um, I think the statistics were for every 10 IQ points above like 130, you're more likely, you know, to, um, to really create uh, problems in your own life and get in your own way. And a lot of this, you know, like we can, we can talk about whether it's here or there. The very simple point is that um, if you look at why, how did humans evolve? Why are we such, um, such a force to be reckoned with when, we, when it comes to the animal kingdom? Well, it's very simple. Okay, we've got the group. We rely on the group. Some people are like, well, it's so it's because we're so diversified. Well, not really. Yeah, we can swim better than monkeys, but we can't climb as well as they can. Yeah, we can climb better than fish, but we can't swim as well as they can. So like any animal in its natural element is going to get us. So we're very vulnerable things. And so we have to find a strength. So what is humanity's strength, really? And coming at this from an observational perspective, it's like, well, if I have... One tiger versus one human, chances are the tiger's going to win. But if I have one tiger versus 20 humans, and then things tip the scale. And then more to the point is if I have one tiger versus 20 humans with tools that they've created because they've had foresight, they've had planning, they've had preparation. That tiger is screwed. <laughs> so very simply put, it's, it's, it just comes back to this idea that the human pack, the human tribe, as it were, the community that humans are a part of is largely the reason why we are so successful. And so it makes sense that we're hardwired into amazing things. So, for example, um, <clears throat> if you look at um, one of the, the more interesting studies, and it is something that is debated. I don't know if you've seen this before where they talk about like the, the learning pyramid. And right at the top, um, you know, you've got like, well, if someone just speaks at you, you'll only take in 5% of the information. But if someone speaks at you and has visual things, 10%. But if they get you to do group tasks, you'll have more and more and more. And eventually it comes down to teaching. And the idea is that humans are innate teachers. We like to demonstrate and show people what we've experienced. And something like that you can be observed in kids with never giving them instructions. They'll ask each other to show each other how to do it, and they'll naturally show each other how to do certain things, or they'll naturally take on tasks to be able to do this. So we're literally hardwired to benefit communities and groups. It's that simple. Um, now, part of this as well has led to um, what's called the social brain theory, which is very simply put, the reason why we developed our intense ability to think, our cognition, all of it is actually spurred on by one point, which is our ability to manage a lot of relationships. That's it, right? And so, well, how many relationships? Well, 
Um, and this is in dispute, of course. This is just a theory, a hypothesis, uh, but it's a, the prevailing one out there. And it's um, the social brain theory leads on to another another guy called um, Dunbar. What was his name now? Robin Dunbar, an anthropologist, British anthropologist, who proposed a number, and that was the pretty much the size of the social group that your brain could manage relationships with, and if you think about the size of the social group, if you compare us to our, our closest relative, the bonobos, like the size of the community, the size of the group that we can manage far exceeds that of the bonobo. And so it's this point that because we can manage so many relationships, we can live in bigger communities, right? So Dunbar's number, it's um, 150 stable relationships. Now there's a lot of holes in this, which I, I largely, I invite you to, to debate and consider, you know, like how many relationships are you managing in your own life? You know, you might have friends on Facebook, but how often do you really communicate with them? And so maintaining relationships is actually not difficult. So maintaining personal and close relationships, I bet you've barely got time for between five and 10. But if we're looking at, you know, uh, relationships where you would communicate once every three months, once every four months, that number jumps up to, let's say, 40. And then if we're talking about extended relationships, that's acquaintances or extended family or things like that, that you would communicate with them once every six months to once every two years. Like, let's give it that big of a scope. You're not even hitting 150 yet because of the way our society is structured today. It doesn't really use that. And so even Dunbar's number, you could you could argue that it doesn't necessarily match um, what we experience today but it could have matched because I mean he proposed this in the 1900s so perhaps that is something that could be there you know now being able to maintain these relationships means not only just giving instructions and talking in like Tarzan speak like you go here you know it includes having layers of respect in there having layers of emotionality in there to be able to express our emotions our fears, our loves, our concerns, hypotheticals, you know, like anything that creates bonding between people, sharing vulnerabilities, sharing dreams. So language came out of this largely as a, as a result. And surprisingly, we have a lot of functions in language that are universal. The way to be polite, the way that we talk to people initially is to show respect, you know, unless we're actively going against that or we have actively no clue how to do that so there's a lot to be said about this social brain theory uh leading on to dunbar's number we can talk about the um the learning pyramid as well and um you know there's there's a ton of other evidence that i can loop into this as well um but i don't i don't think it's necessarily like as useful as we think but uh, the learning pyramid if you want to look it up it's from the national training laboratories in uh, bethnal in maine uh, usa um, social brain theory I'll put a whole bunch of links as well but one of my favorite books on the social brain and the social brain hypothesis is uh, it's called the social brain by a professor at uh, University of Bath called Richard Crisp so once again it'll all be linked in the show notes highly recommend this one and there was a very interesting study in there that comes in again with like it just it validates you know it confirms a lot of the stuff so I'm not necessarily saying that this is 100% the only thing that's worth mentioning. 
it's more to the point that there's a lot of conclusive evidence that we can see that suggests that socializing plays a much bigger part in our brain, in our brain development, in how we as humans interact than we probably give it credit for. So thinking about that, thinking about how, well, I want to enjoy my life. Well, okay, great. What are you going to do with it then? Well, I'm going to dedicate it to others and enriching the community um, and enriching myself through trying to add value. Right, now you've got something. You know, if I ask you to think about the happiest moments in your life, there's probably some sort of achievement. And in that celebration, you share an achievement with, um, you know, family, friends, a community. Now, whether that achievement is graduating university, um, launching a successful business, or simply having a child and welcoming a child in, the idea is that the, 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 the more shared it is, the, the better it is. And so, like, we'll talk about this as well with emotions, but there is a point to mention here, which is, sure, so we can hack learning, for example, and learning in a social group tends to be more effective because we can create um, interactions around it as well, which is allow, allows us to be productive with our learning, not just receptive, like us sitting at a desk with our books. So coming from a learning angle, coming from a happiness angle, and then coming from a brain development angle, why do we have this big brain? What exactly is the point? Well, it's tool making. Well, there are monkeys that have tools. There are dolphins, pods of dolphins that have been recorded to actually uh, teach their children how to use tools as well. So tools isn't the only thing that explains our brain. Oh, it's uh, language. We've got big brains because of our language. Well, not really. There are other forms of species and life forms out there that actually use language um, you know, almost as eloquently as us. Obviously, for us, it's a, it's a lot more. But I would say birdsong, it could be considered minimal types of language. You know, the way, there are ways that animals communicate with each other as well, which is considered um, linguistic in nature. So um, if you're curious about this, um, there's a pretty heavy book to read called The, the Articulate Mammal. Articulate, articulate Mammal. Um, the Articulate Mammal by... Um, Who's it by? Gene Atkinson, I think. And that's a very, very, uh, very interesting idea. Um, you know, again, coming at this from this point of uh, what's known as psycholinguistics, okay, and how we process language in the brain. But all of these things, it, it just comes back to the idea that the vast majority of our brain is tied with other people. Now, <clears throat> The other two points to mention in this entire thing is if we look at the brain, can I say, yeah, 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 that's nice and all, but if I want to focus, doing it alone is better for me. Sure. Okay. There is this idea of if I want to achieve, I need to be alone, but if I want to party, I can share it with friends. Absolutely. But can humans and can the human group be more effective together? Can we be more than just the sum of our parts? Okay. And literally, um, this, is, this is the idea behind emergence theory. If we mix certain things together, we're going to get more than just a mixture. We're going to get a new thing actually being birthed out of that. You know, if we create a system, if we create a community, we can actually find that new things will be created that are more than just the sum of their parts. 
And so when we talk about this, like let's talk about, um, there's another book called The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle. And this guy just examined a whole bunch of things based on successful groups, okay? So, um, and again, I'll attach a video that explains what, um, what this one guy did called uh, The Marshmallow Experiment. And the marshmallow experiment was basically um, this this very interesting guy called Peter Skillman, and he challenged four separate groups um, to a competition. And the competition was simple. You get a certain amount of materials, and you have to build the highest structure that you can and put the marshmallow on top. So, <laughs> so the materials that you get, okay, you get like 20 pieces of dry spaghetti, um, a yard of tape, and a yard of string, and then you get the marshmallow as well. And what's interesting is that one of the groups continually beat, it out, uh, beat out all of the other groups by at least 11 inches in height. So um, this one group was consistently, um, what was it, 23 inches, 26 inches in height compared to um, less than 10 inches. So the closest competitor was 10 inches. And so well, what was this about? Well, you had a group of lawyers, you had a, a group of recent business um, graduates, and then you had a group of CEOs against a group of kindergartners. And the kindergartners outperformed all of those other groups all the time. And you're like, okay, great. Why? Why is that? Why are you telling me that kindergartners are smarter than us? And it turns out that they just because they didn't vie for social status or establish social status and group etiquette, group culture, they were able to jump into the task a lot faster. And the result of this is they were able to run through more renditions of different towers. They failed faster, they failed um, you know, more frequently, and so they were able to come up with ones that actually worked better. With regard to... Um, you know, the other groups, they spend so much time deciding who's going to make the decisions, who's going to be the leader, you know, approving different plans and voting for the best ones and then dedicating themselves that they only had time enough to try one particular thing. But a lot of people see this as a negative. They're like, oh, you see, it just proves that socializing gets in the way. Well, actually, no. If you read The, the Social Brain by Richard Crisp, as I mentioned, there was a very interesting experiment in there and it's led to a psychological development idea. That is to say, before puberty, from zero to nine, you have a, a large portion of the brain that's awakened by examining the world and learning more about the world. So curiosity is very high, novel experiences, repetition, all of that kind of stuff kicks in. Now, from the development of puberty up until the end of puberty, which is approximately when the brain develops the prefrontal cortex and all of the, the smaller parts there, which ends at the age approximately of 25 in the average human, you've got the development of social brain, okay? Where you notice that your good kid all of a sudden falls in with a bad crowd and they're highly influential by a social group Cool and not cool is a big deal. So what you find is actually that um, they noticed that when these kids went into groups, if you imagine all of their characteristics and personality on a soundboard with these like um, dials between zero to 10, a kid 
with a certain personality will come into a group and turn down all of the dials that make them an individual that they've probably learned in the first 10 years of their life. And they, that's phase one. They'll turn down everything and observe. Phase two is then when they adjust all of their personality markers to match the group that they're trying to join. And so let's say if the group is uh, part cruel, part fun, playful, etc., they'll turn up those dials to match the group so that they feel like they belong. And then finally, the third part is that they can figure out an individual placement for them inside their social group. And so they'll turn up uh, specific dials. They'll keep the group's foundational dials up and they'll turn up very specific dials that allows them to become a unique member of that group rather than a uniform member of that group as well. And so the very simple point is that kindergartners don't have to deal with this type of establishment of group culture. Whereas we can see the more effective companies as well, based on certain reports, are ones that have very strong cultures established. So businesses that have very strong cultures established are going to be more successful than, and retain their employees and actually have a lower employee turnover, higher employee satisfaction rating as well, when, with not necessarily being com competitive with salary because they're actually ticking all these boxes that make employees feel fulfilled. So the very simple point is, number one, if we vie for social status, we've got issues. We need to establish social status first, and then we can become more than just the sum of our parts and be able to create something that alone would have taken us ages to do or um, maybe not as insightful as, or as beautiful as what other people um, could help us achieve if we were part of a, a group. So the social brain hypothesis, it comes back to this idea of you know, feeling valued by being part of a group. Um, our brains developed to be part of a group as well. And certain things like art forms is a way to communicate ideas to this group as well. So, um, you know, whatever idea that may be, whether it be, you know, the herds are here, this is a story of a great hunt, or this is communicating information about where the hunts are to, um, well, this artist feels loneliness and therefore they're going to try and share with people what their feelings are and try and put it into a visual format, an audio format or whatever, whatever the case may be. So the brain is actually evolved into a very, very social part. So here's a couple of questions for you to think about. And in part two and part three, we'll go into, uh, sorry, uh, uh, forgive me, in principle two and principle three, which is going to be part three and part four of the human operating system. I forgot to count the introduction as part one. Um, we're going to go into um, a little bit more detail and we will obviously kick back to this social brain theory. But the very simple point is, if you're unhappy, think about how much you're doing with people. If you are angry, think about how much does that have to do with people as well. Um, if you want to achieve something, think about how you can utilize this idea that your brain responds heavily to groups, to groups of people. How much your goals and your desires are about achieving a sense of belonging, validation or value in a group as well. And I think there is a further thing that's worth mentioning, which is um, there's a YouTube channel 
um, by this guy called Charlie, and he's got a YouTube channel called Charisma on Command. And what's very interesting is he shared this idea of happiness, and I'll attach it in the show notes below. But very simply put, he created his levels of happiness, you know, to get physical things, then to get experiences, then to gain skills, then to add value to the group. And what's interesting is that he divided all of those into two. If you get things because they make you happy versus getting things because then all of a sudden people value what you've got. You know, those are two very different motivations. And going for the more more personal value is truer and it's going to make you more happy. But our brains are wired to kick us back to the other one. Look at this cool thing that I've got. Yes, it makes me happy, but it also makes me happy that everybody else values it equally as well. And so this idea that, well, we can get things just for us or get things and share them with others and it makes us even more happy. And the negative one in this case is I get things not because I care about them, but because I know that other people care about them. And so I'll, I'll, I need to feel valued. So let me buy this thing. Experiences. I do them just for myself. I do them for myself and to share with others. Or of course, the negative one. Uh, well, I do these experiences because I know that reporting back to other people will make them value me more. I only do these experiences so that I can have the bragging rights. Um, and we go on to, again, then the skill acquisition. I only want these skills so I can seem valuable and appealing to the group. Mm, that's a minus one. So I do it for myself or I do it and it brings value to others as well. So there's there's this very simple idea of, well, what are you doing that, that comes out of your own motivation? What are you doing that comes out of your need to be validated by others? What are you doing that, yes, you enjoy it and it's fantastic to have this feeling that it gives and brings value to other people as well. Cool. All right. I'm going to stop it there for today because uh, I'm sure it's a ton of information and I'm skimming the surface on a lot of the stuff that's out there with regard to how our brains are wired to actually be social which means that until your brain is part of a social network a social group a social link of brains together you are not actually utilizing all the areas of your brain and that was the coolest piece of research that i found as well which is that our brain waves can actually synchronize with people that we identify with our brain waves can actually signal a leader before we've elected one as well based on how they re respond, how our emotions respond to a person who is speaking. You know, so if we're in a group and one person's speaking, the brain waves will usually tell the scientists who the group is going to select as a leader as well. Very interesting stuff. So I'll leave it there. As I said, um, you know, it's all about the process and enjoying the process. The result doesn't matter. How you get to the result is the thing. So if you're enjoying the series, let me know, you know, give me a like, give me a comment, um, go and rate me on iTunes if you like it. Um, if any of this is super interesting for you and you want to ask questions, you want to challenge, oh, if you want to challenge, if you say, yeah, but Justin, what about blah, 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 bring it on. I love this kind of stuff. I don't come to these kind of conclusions lightly and I'd be very happy to kind of put all of this forward as well. So please challenge me. Um, yeah, if, and if you want to have any specific recommendations, you know, give me a, uh, send me a, a direct message and let me know what's on your mind. Cool. As always, enjoy the process. Ciao.